0: Hey, what's going on, automotive world? This is the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping. I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today on the show, I've got a couple experts that are going to be joining me, Matt Fonslow and Matt Scundrich. Uh They've both been on the show before, so you should be familiar with them. Uh, today we're going to be talking about scopes, uh, digital storage, oscilloscopes, lab scopes. Um, what are some of the benefits? What are some of the possible downsides? What's practical? What's the right scope for you and some of the features uh, that you can utilize with uh, lab scopes where they're going to be most advantageous to uh, you know your life as a technician and where maybe they're not so practical. These two guys have a lot of knowledge on this subject, so I'm excited to get into this talk. Let's jump right in.
1: Now we're good to go. What's going on guys?
2: Just trying to stay cool, you know. It's very warm <laughs> up here.
3: <laughs> what yeah. is the temperature for you guys?
2: It warmed up today. We were uh, above 0 for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's a heat wave yep.
3: did you bust out your shorts
2: no I mean, but I had whole, one whole less layer I mean god
1: yeah I didn't even grab my jacket this morning I'm like alright cool sweatshirt will do the trick today So. Yep.
2: <laughs> yeah especially this
1: afternoon
3: yeah it's uh, 61 outside and I think we had a high of 88 today
1: yeah <laughs> well. I'm going to Vegas next week, so hopefully uh, a little bit warmer right, temperatures there, there.
3: Well, it depends. They might have snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never know.
1: Yeah, we might have hit
2: 88 inside the car I flushed the heater core on. That might have hit 88 <laughs> in there.
3: Yeah, it was, uh, Florida's got nice weather. I mean, it gets to like 32 or three nights, so that's it, like.
1: Yeah, what happened to all the the snow that moved across the south and it just stopped before it got anywhere close to Florida, huh?
3: Yeah, like it it sees the Florida state line and it's like, don't go there. (laughs) Crazy people live there.
1: (laughs) Disney
2: paid them off.
3: Can you imagine if it snowed in Florida? Like, we see enough of the Florida man during the hurricanes. Can you imagine if there was snow and ice on the roads? Oh my gosh, it would be like...
2: A lot like Texas, probably. level of memes. Yeah, it would be a (laughs) lot like Texas.
3: Oh, it'd be worse. Just not
2: prepared, yeah.
3: No, we all have generators and lots of gas because we have hurricanes <laughs> from like I don't know April to October.
1: Yeah, that's that's a whole uh, another level of something to worry about. I mean, at least in the Midwest, like we don't necessarily have to worry. Tornadoes, I guess, would be the closest thing. But I mean, you have a whole, whole well, season have- of hurricanes.
3: We have tornadoes, we have hurricanes, we have flash floods, we have <laughs> thunderstorms you can set your watch to in the summertime. So, yeah, we have we have fun weather. I always tell people, if you want to come to an experience Florida, you come in August. It hits like 103 with the heat index, and then it rains, and you feel great. And then the sun comes out, and it's 195% humidity. And you don't even have to go pay for a sauna. You just stand outside naked and you're like, "Ah, the sauna is here.
1: (laughs) I mean, what do you do for all your equipment? It's got to be baking in your van driving around, huh?
3: I don't care. It doesn't seem to hurt it. Okay. (laughs) I mean, my laptop sit in the cab of my Silverado and they sit in there. You figure I come home Saturday night, park it outside. They sit out there Saturday, all day Sunday, and Monday I used them. I've never had an issue with the heat destroying a laptop.
2: I of know the keys have letters on them anymore, but just all,
3: <laughs>
2: all memory. Where's my home row? I well,
3: mean, I, I don't have soldering problems in any of my life. I mean, joints <laughs> don't
2: crack. Just set the chips and resistors and then set it up on your dash and wait a few minutes. So, funny story about that is
3: when Toyota had their, you know, like, hey, print this target, I bought a 3D printer for ADOS and I was like, man, I'm going to 3D printed Toyota Target. So I don't have to use all this black ink all the time. I just really nice 3D printed Target. It went on a uh, uh, a tripod and I stuck it on my dashboard one day driving to a job and forgot about it. And I come out and it was like melted on my <laughs> dashboard. And I'm like, great. There goes 12 hours of my life. <laughs> Got to reprint that sucker. So, Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, I know I was using my phone this summer. I mean, that's just up here. It doesn't get, we get a week where maybe it'll hit a hundred or so. And I was trying to do stuff in a car. And of course I'm just baking because it's outside in the sun and stuff. And my phone's like too, too hot to operate or it it, it needs to like cool down or something. I'd never seen that warning before (laughs) on my phone, but uh, I guess, uh, yeah, some of those electronics don't like the heat.
3: You learn not to put things in sunlight in Florida. Like, Oh, there's a spot of shade. I'm going to stick it there (laughs) because my phone says it all the time. Like somebody will call and I'll throw it on the, on like the passenger seat and I'll be working on something, have my Bluetooth on. Next thing I know, the call's gone and I'm like, what happened? Oh, phone's overheated. So then you got to start the car and hold it in front of the AC vent with no case. (laughs) But my scope always works in the heat. It doesn't care. (laughs) I mean, that sucker works. I think when they made the Pico, they were like, all right, let's find the hottest place in the world and see if the scope works. Let's just put it in our oven and see if it works because I've never had an issue with my Pico. But my Kardec 3 Plus, the little rubber boots that are on the end, they're... They, you got your
2: fingerprints on them though.
3: No, they, they don't even stay on anymore. I, oh. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've i had Kardec send me like three sets. They get so warped from the heat, they just keep falling off. But my Pico little boot that it comes in, it's perfect. And the peak and the, uh, the ASC, w- the U scope. Yeah. That orange thing, man, you're never getting it off. Now the heat like shrunk it to my U <laughs> scope. <laughs> it's never coming off. It's
2: made out a heat shrink tubing. They didn't tell <laughs> you.
3: <laughs> I don't know what Carlos made that out of, but man, it's never coming
2: off. <laughs> the screen's convex now.
3: <laughs> I was like, Oh, I need to take this off. Cause I wanted to try to see if I could get a new battery for it. I couldn't get it off.
2: tried to sell the idea to george like look look you can see it better from over here (laughs) those tvs
0: well uh yeah that's what we're here to
1: talk about tonight is uh scopes and uh i know we had some people in the facebook group asking about lab scopes and stuff and uh yeah i think uh Scandridge, you can tell us why scopes are terrible, and uh, we'll, we'll come up with some other <laughs> ideas. And
3: <laughs> So I like – I don't know. It seemed a couple years ago – maybe I'm wrong, maybe five years ago. But in the last five years, it seems that Facebook is nothing but scopes, right? Like somebody goes, hey, I think I might have a page – bad purge valve no lie the second post is going to be did you scope it i'm like you don't need to scope a freaking purge valve man <laughs> did it click or not use your power probe um so i kind of became vindictive against scoping users and it's not that i don't use one but i i feel that in my job of being mobile um and sean miller will attest to this story we had a chrysler that had no start um and it was because the the timing was off, right? And so I picked up my y and you could see sync, no sync, sync, no sync, sync, no sync. And if you've experienced these enough and you're used to looking at data because you've looked at enough known good data, I'm like, this thing's out of time. The timing belt's too worn out. It has 150,000 miles on this or something. I'm like, it, it's out of time. And Sean Miller was riding with me for the day and he goes, well, let's get the scope out. I'm like, fine, you go get the scope. And I started my stopwatch. It was 25 minutes to pull my scope out and set it up. And then it's another 20 minutes to put it away. So it's 45 minutes. We lost to verify something we saw on data. And that's where to me, I, I have an issue with scopes. I'm not against scopes and I think they have a purpose, but I think we overutilize them, uh, in some aspects.
1: Yeah. And I mean, they can definitely send you down a rabbit hole. Um, I think anybody who's used one's probably experienced that where you're, you overanalyze something or you spend way too much time chasing something you think is wrong, some little thing and turns out, well, no, that that's not the issue. You, you know, there's something more obvious you could have found a different way. So uh, there, there are definitely some pitfalls to using them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I
3: will say that the times I pull out my scope first, and now let me clarify this, why I'm saying this. I am a mobile tech that when I get called, they've done fired the Identifix part cannon, right? So if I get a call for a misfire, they've already put coils on it. They've already put a plug in it. Most times it's had a fuel injector, um, but misfires. The first thing I pull out of my truck is my WPS and my Pico, and it goes right in cylinder, and we're looking at it running cranking because at that point i'm almost guaranteed they have an engine problem very rarely do they not and if they don't i at least have a better idea of where this engine stands to move forward with other testing and i don't even bother checking spark fuel nothing on a if they're like hey we got this po 303 we cannot get rid of it first thing i do is my wps i mean that's uh, it's literally my first thing. The other thing I pulled out for first is network problems. Um, but I'm learning now with networks, if you don't have the correct breakout box to get out of the gateway, like on the new Ford's, the DLC is the gateway on, I think it started in 2015 or 16. Ford has a special breakout box. It's 400 bucks, but you unplug that gateway, you plug in this box and it gives you like 30 banana leads you can plug into because that gateway that 16 pin does not cover all the networks and so that's why you got to have the ford breakout um but those are the only two times that it is the first thing out of my truck every time without fail
2: yeah i just think with scopes in general it's not even so much that the the scopes i mean the scopes are getting better but it's also the the big shift has been in um Scan tool technology, and like the networks you're talking about, the speed, you know, scopes really started getting pop. Well, you know, ignition scopes way back in the day, right? That's really all there was to look at. Scope, ign- right? Ignition, <laughs> and um, and then in the early days of like OBD, well, all throughout OBD one, and then early days of OBD two, your number of PIDs was pretty minuscule in general the update rates were horrific on a lot of car lines, not all of them. Some of them were pretty rapid, but most of them, the update rates were not good. So the, you could look at something with more detail with a scope, even if though even though it might be quote unquote, kind of the same thing you would look on the scan tool. It's just the the detail would be better because the refresh rate on the scope is so much faster than uh, the scan tool. Well, now our scan tool speeds are picking up the sheer number of PIDs we have, not just, um, I don't know about if raw is the right word I want to use, but l- let's just say like, you can look at TPS one, TPS two voltage, but then there's also a PID that shows whether they agree or disagree, or, you know, a, a difference between the two, a correlation. So there's more of these calculated PIDs that do take a lot of the, uh, interpretation, uh, out of our hands or we don't have to use our, you know, brains or uh, w- whatnot to, to determine that, to try to calculate that out ourselves. The, uh, the scan tool does it. So, you know, I, it's just the real world. You fix a lot of cars sitting in the driver's seat and, you know, one or two tests under the hood, maybe not even using a specific tool, except the scan tool, maybe a dynamic test, listening for a click. Uh, and then like you said, a power probe, meter. Um, you know, if you're going to scope it, you're going to grab maybe like the U scope, right? Because it's basically a ultra fast grow- graphing um, voltmeter, right? Th- and that's what you would use. And that's just, I think that's just real life. That's that's how things are going. Uh, and we've also learned over the last decade or two uh, the way to use data and our uh, to our advantage. And that, the first thing that pops in my head is it used to be all the rage to scope mass air flows and do these snap throttles and see what was the peak voltage or frequency that, I mean, that's, that was just a regular test. That's what you did. I don't remember the last time I did that when I kind of figured out and I shouldn't say figured out through classes, uh, interaction with other techs to use scan data, specifically fuel trims to pick out, of a contaminated math or a failing math, you don't scope it anymore, you know, and that's just stuff we've accumulated over time. That's not to say scopes don't have a purpose. They absolutely, absolutely do. But it's kind of like, um, I was reading on some form. It's like a press, you know, you don't use it all the time, but when you need it, you got to use it. Right.
1: It's yeah, a good way to think about it is. Yeah. When it when it comes to that, that one purpose, that one job, I mean, there's there's nothing else that's gonna do it the same way. I mean, that's gonna that's gonna nail down that problem for you, like nothing else could. Um yeah, the so the U scope is just so easy to use. And when I do mobile stuff, that's it's with me in my bag that I go to pretty much for every car. So ninety-five percent of the scope stuff that I do on that sort of diagnostic is done with that U scope. And then of course if I need two channels or you know, more detail, I'll grab out the Pico, but like Matt said, take some time to get that set up you know, all the leads out and everything. Um, have you guys seen some people actually have like a mobile case for their Pico where it, it's like a box that's set up and easy to use. I don't know if something like that would be more advantageous or I don't know, maybe if you're just in a shop and you have a cart, I suppose it you know, kind of changes things a little bit. Oh yeah. Right? epically
3: epically if i was in a shop i would have a a cart set up with a tv on it and and my pico would be out i would probably uh 3d print something so that i could have my bnc leads extended out of the top of the thing and i'd have the the prints labeled ABCD so i know what the channels are and and then i would have extension leads out from there and and it would be totally different i would probably scope a lot more but I think the the conundrum of today is you have a lot of techs who don't have a four channel that can't do some of the stuff they'd like to get into scoping, but they can't afford a Pico because let's face it I don't th- does Pico still make the 4425 or is it only the 4425
2: a? Yeah they don't make the 4425 right. and you might you might be able to still locate them maybe some new stock somewhere uh, otherwise your best bet is used.
3: Right. Like, yeah. But that, that 4425A cost a little bit more than what the 4425 did. And, and and I get it, right? It's a great feature. There's times where I would love, because I'm mobile, and when I pull up my amp clamp, it's always freaking dead. So <laughs> don't get me wrong. Like I would love a 4425. I would probably scope more if I had one, because my batteries are always dead. I actually keep a 50 pack of 9 volts in my truck. That's how that I kill my batteries. But... For a new tech to drop that kind of coin, it's it's unreal. So, to me, if, if I have to rank scopes, the the u scope comes first, and I tell yeah. everybody to buy the master kit because it it does damn near everything for one channel.
2: Well, I was gonna say like we could have a future episode on a list of our top whatever five ten must have tools diagnostic tools. The use scope would probably be on everybody's <laughs> list and fairly fairly high up because the usefulness of it, the affordability of it, it's not price, you know, or cost prohibitive for most tests.
3: Do they make money selling that thing? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, come on. You hope so, but <laughs> it is George. Who knows? Just,
2: you know, for most of the stuff you I don't know, maybe most is the wrong word, but for a lot of stuff you do. Just that one channel, you you might not even be looking specifically at a waveform, but you kind of want to see the whole picture. You don't want to just see a number. What, wherever that may be, like I love it for dash stuff, checking, you know, blower motor functions. You know, I can have the current probe there if I want to scope the blower motor current. And then also the, you know, however the blower motor is being controlled and the signals getting sent to the. What you know, resistor block or blower blower motor control module. It's just bang, 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 bang. You know, I don't need to really compare it to anything. It's just, and I, you know, I could do it with a voltmeter. Probably could do it with a power probe, but you know, the scope is just that. You know, for well, it's the one more dimension, right? It adds the time domain uh instead, as well as the voltage or amplitude uh, domain. Uh, so that would be number one, or not number. It would definitely be in everybody's list of must haves.
3: Oh, Top five, yeah. everybody must have list, would have a U-scope in it. And, and my problem with me is the U-scope, I bought the advanced kit. It comes in a real nice pistol case. All my pistols have like the same cases <laughs> <bought a> pistol <laughs> case. Um, it's got this beautiful white, barely readable anymore, AES wave logo on it. And if I'm going to go to my truck and grab my multimeter to look at something, I just go ahead and grab that because... It's the same amount of work, right? Because it's one leak, positive and negative. Turn it on. The only beef I have with my U-scope is the battery sucks now because it's like five years old. <laughs> so I have a I have a external USB battery backup that I just keep. And I just plug it in when it when I forget to charge it. Um, but it's it's easier to me to grab that than it is to grab my multimeter. The only time I use my multimeter is for an ohms test, and I know we could have a debate if ohms test is good or not, but I still use it. So. Um, and especially if you're going to graph something simple, like I, I do a lot of body shots, right? So we have active wheel speed sensors. So I scope the crap out of them that the U scopes number one for that. I and mean, you can't beat it.
1: Yeah. Doing simple. You just want to see a Lin bus. I was doing yeah an open on a Lin bus and I just want to check here in the circuit, here in the circuit and you can see the communication or it's not there. And yeah, so quick. So you can't beat that. Um, what do you guys think about a scope as a learning tool? So I I, have, I teach at the college and I work with the students and my goal is not to convince them to go buy Pico as soon as they leave. I actually tell them not to do that. You know, obviously go buy the U scope, but we use the Picos and I think the visual, you know, the graphic drawing it out as a picture helps them understand the electrical concepts a little bit better um i mean what do you what are your thoughts on that for somebody who's just learning this stuff or trying to get better at it yeah i think for anybody
2: i i think that's part of the appeal of the scope is you don't know how it really works and the scope can give you a little bit of insight on that you know going back to the blower motor control module you know is it just a varying voltage from like a potentiometer on the uh hvac control head or is it you know frequency modulated or duty cycle uh, modulated signal that det- you know sends the signal for the request of blower speed and using that just it's a quick way you plug it in and i turn the knob and you know what what happens and being able to see that change and, and see what it's really doing it's just one more thing that you know, maybe going to go brag to everybody about how you figured out how this is controlled. But in the back of your head, you, you've you seen a control strategy. And may, the next thing with the, you know, the antenna mast, how is that controlled? Oh, you know, do they even have antenna masts anymore? That was probably a horrific example. but
1: The wow, ones that go up j- and down? Just,
2: yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen a car with that in a while, but just... <laughs>
3: i've never even seen one of those <laughs> yeah my,
1: my 94 park avenue had one so that was the last one i saw <laughs> uh,
3: but going back to your blower motor i had a uh 2020 mercedes that got into a really bad car accident and none of the ac controls worked nothing worked now i didn't realize nothing worked i got told hey my the blower doesn't work in the ac well it's got a power ground and a limb bus. So I scoped the lin. called a buddy of mine, said, hey, man, have you ever scoped the lin? What's it supposed to look like? Because I'm like, is it zero to 12 volts? Like, what is this lin? Like, it could be anything. And he's like, well, hold on. I got one in the parking lot. I mean, it wasn't the exact same car, but it was another Mercedes. And his matched exactly what my matched. I mean, you could see real low voltage when it was at like one. When you turned it on high, it was near 12 volts almost all the time. And so he's like, well, you got that, you got power, you got ground. No, it's going to need a blower motor. I can tell you, I put a $280 blower motor. In. It didn't fix it. <laughs> <laughs> it ended up having uh crash data stored in there. And I had to reset the crash data with the uh, factory tool in order for it to work. But that was a uh, new learning curve on a new car. So welcome to the new generation of cars, which is funny because I had crash data, but it didn't set the stupid battery safety crash in the back of the car oh no only the ac set crashed out a stupid car
1: yeah that's uh, another challenge to scopes is the known goods right what is what is good and what is not and that there's some what there are some groups and some websites and stuff that can help you but it's not going to (laughs) have probably that one thing that you're looking for yeah almost never um
2: never yeah you know some of the circuits are going to check you should you can kind of figure out what it should you know if you're Looking at a solenoid, and you you know it's fed 12 volts. You know it's controlled by a module pulling one side low, you know, close to ground, and then uh, when it releases it, you're gonna have you know it's an inductor, so it's gonna have a magnetic field that collapses, and you're gonna get a spike. You kind of have an idea what this will probably kind of look like. You know, you might have some parameters you can come up with. um, You know. Five volt potentiometer sweeps, like a APP or a throttle position sensor, you can, you know, you know it's going to be a signal somewhere between zero and five volts. Like You know, the the rough ones um, are like the crank versus cam correlation. You could tell that the crank sensor is probably good, the cam sensor is probably good, but now how they correlate to another one another. Sometimes that's not really in-service information. Sometimes they are, but a lot of times it's not. And that's where a database is very important. You know, and it's kind of too bad we can't all just decide to support one thing, whatever that may be. You know, even if we start our own website and then it's just everybody works to fill that. So that that instance, when you need it, it's there or... Broadcasting out to a large number of techs that could pull that for you um off of running vehicle. It's just now we have so many different places to go.
3: that was the big big thing when I started my mobile business six years ago was IATN was great for that six years ago. I mean, there were so many techs put known goods on there, and if you needed one you could get one pretty quick, but that's kind of died off. I mean Now it's about who do you know that's a scope nerd that just likes to scope everything under the sun? I mean, and that's the problem. And then you got people like me who see brand new cars and I'm going, nobody's going to have a known good of this 2020. <laughs> I mean, my wife has a 2020 Explorer ST. It's got a three liter twin turbo in it. It's the first year the Explorer has that car. I'm waiting for the day somebody asks for a known good on that because I'm like, all right, I guess I'll go waste my time and scope it. <laughs> yeah. But I have no desire to even. I mean, I opened the hood one time and looked at it and was like, oh, thank God for a warranty, and I closed the hood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything's buried. But if somebody needs something, I'll go get it. But that's the issue. I mean, if you don't have known good, what good's a scope to me? And and to me, the the biggest problem is in cylinder known goods. Um, I know, I think it was Sean Miller had a Cadillac that had a really weird exhaust bump towards the end of the exhaust and it had a running rough issue and he posted in the group, Hey, what do you guys think? And this was a newer car. Nobody had done in cylinder one, but it was a four cylinders. Sean had no issues doing it real quick, but all four cylinders were the same, but it was only pegging one. And so I said, Sean, you're going to have to get another car from that dealership. And it ended up being an absolutely normal phenomenon. But when you looked at it, you were like, oh, that's got to be wrong. That's got to be wrong. There's no way you should have this one PSI bump at the end of your exhaust stroke. I mean, it was just so absurd to us, but it was something to do with the VVT. That's what they did. And without that known good, Sean probably would have chased his tail. But he was smart enough to go, yeah, I think you're right. I think we need to know good here before I go down rabbit holes. And and that's what he did.
2: Yeah, especially if you, you know there are a lot of classes or a lot of what you see yourself is just that textbook in cylinder running compression waveform. you know, where the exhaust plateau is really, you know, a little wavy, but flat at, at zero PSI or, you know, atmospheric, however you want to interpret that. And the, the compression towers are symmetrical and all that jazz. And then, The reality is is some cars have normally leaning towers and the exhaust plateau is far, far from just flat. (laughs) You know, it's got kicks here and there and they're all, it's completely normal. So, you know, it's kind of one of them things where a lot of the stuff we do, regardless of what it is, uh, scan data or scope waveforms is you kind of have to note it and then kind of back I don't know back burner it or set it off to the side and it's like I know that I, I have a concern about that but I, I'm not going down this rabbit hole because some people dive down those rabbit holes and it's an expensive lesson for somebody who whoever's footing the bill on it depending on your situation.
1: Oh, yeah. I've, I've definitely been there myself. And yeah, that's how you learn to, to put a pin in it and come back to it because you're like, oh, hang on. I remember last time I wasted an hour on this this thing that I thought I saw that I thought was a problem. Um, yeah. yeah, those mechanical um, pressure waveforms, whether it be intake or exhaust or in-cylinder, I mean, at least with electricity I feel like there's some rules that it has to follow, you know, it's mathematical almost, but man, when it comes to pressures, I realize I'm sure there's plenty of math to that too, but there's so many more variables and differences that you can have from engine to engine. There's no, (laughs) there's no rules like electricity has to follow from different vehicles. So I've definitely struggled with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, in-cylinder compression, I remember the first time I saw a, um, Uh, electronically controlled fuel pump on a Ford. Uh, So this is, geez, I don't know, late, late nineties, maybe. And I've seen module controlled, um, you know, speed controlled or whatever fuel pumps before, but it's usually just low speed, high speed. And it looks like a fuel pump current waveform, just one's higher and a little bit faster than the other. Well, this first one I did for a Ford, you know, and being the moron I am, I saw this just mess of a waveform. I'm like, oh, geez, that fuel pump's junk. <laughs> I've never seen one so bad in my life. Oh, my God. Gets a new fuel pump. Looks exactly the same. <laughs> because they're controlling that thing at some absurd kilohertz. You know, in the kilohertz, they're pulsed thing that uh, fuel pump, electric pump. at You know, in the kilohertz range. And it is a mess. It's an absolute mess. You diagnose them. If you're going to scope current, you do it either key up, or you take the module out of it, and you just jump power feeding ground to the thing.
3: I going back to your school topic. Um, I went to UTI, and when we learned scopes, I mean, we're talking 2005. So the the four channel modus that everybody loves, it still loves because it's a great scope. I mean, the old one where you could get the. Uh, the drawing program, if you knew the the shortcut codes on the thing, because that's what we all did in class. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we learned on. And when we learned, we were not allowed, we were not taught that the tool had presets in it. We had to memorize certain time bases and what the pattern should look like. And I'm still a big advocate of that today. I, I feel that presets are giving people a huge handicap because if they see something they don't know how to do, they they can't just correct it. They don't maybe understand what this time base by expanding it or contracting it how it affects the waveform because they've always used the Pico preset or the snap-on preset or the whatever preset. Um and yeah. that I think is a big problem with today's people is they want it now. They don't they don't want to learn it. They just want that picture now. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Play with the time. And the Pico even, you can change the resolution. If you change the resolution too far down or too far up, you'll get a goofy waveform if you don't understand what it's doing. Yep. Um, or
2: yeah,
3: sample.
2: you almost – oh, sorry. Go ahead.
3: No, I was going to say the sample rate, not resolution. They call it sample rate.
2: Yeah, and, and um, you almost want to start students out with a analog-type scope, even though maybe not necessarily analog, but, um, you know, like a benchtop, more general-purpose-type uh, scope with the dials on it, because again, no presets, and you kind of learn that you can twist these knobs, change the you know voltage range, change the time base to get what you're kind of looking for, and that leads you into wh- whatever the uh, scope you're using, more conventional for auto repair, that you can just fiddle with the buttons and do the same thing. You know, it's so I you know for my two year. Uh, automotive program we had no scope classes there's nothing to do with the scope uh, we had uh, the college I went to had a uh, not bragging but it was a work really honestly a world-renowned band instrument repair program and they had um Hewlett Packard I think Hewlett Packard analog scopes and uh the instructor wheeled one down for me to goof around with and I you know poking and hoping and just that's what i did turn the knobs until i got something cool had no idea what it meant i mean no idea um and that was it That wasn't tested on it wasn't part of a part of the program my third year on the other hand um we had thick packets on i think four scopes we had the uh, fluke 97 which was known as the kind of the grand piano we had this rebadged, re-badged uh, Tektronix scope that was badged MAC. I don't remember the model number, but it was a MAC uh, lab scope, but it was really a rebadged Tektronix. Uh, the Sun LS2000, which is maybe more familiar as a UEI 7400 sound right?
3: I, I had the LS2000. It was a little handheld thing. Yep, yeah. And it had the button for vertical and it only did up and down. Yep. Yep. And then it had the time base and it only did left. Yep. Or. I was telling Sean about that when we were yep. talking on the phone. I'm like, it was the best scope ever. Yep. You Super better have simple. a 200 foot extension cord, though. <laughs> yeah. That battery didn't <laughs> the last 40 seconds. <laughs> uh, and then
2: an OTC Vision, which I think was a rebadged Intero PDA 100 or PDA 50, something like that. So we had these packets, extensive packets with the uh, little snap-on type of boards, and they would tell us where to position everything, and then you had to either draw what you had on your screen or print it out if you could. Uh, and that was I mean that was eye opening. Uh, just forcing you to do that. So then scope setup wasn't really such a big deal because you just turn the dials or whatever you needed to do until you got what you needed on, could see what you needed to see on the screen. And then, you know, kind of back to what we were talking about before. Is it a five volt sensor? Okay, well, it should be within this range, I would expect. and...
3: And the manual setup teaches you things that you don't understand unless you've done it. Here's my example. If I'm doing a, take my wife's car and I want to do a cam crank sink, right? It's got four camshaft sensors, one crankshaft sensor. Well, I would probably do all four camshafts at one time. Well, you don't want them overlapping because they're all 5 volts. So you're going to probably set your voltage scale up to something stupid like 0 to 20 on each one because then it's going to take up a fourth of your screen and you can stack them all on top of each other and you'll put the left bank on the bottom and the right bank on the top or vice versa. And then you'll save that screen capture. Then you'll take one out, put the crank in, and and because you have your previous capture, you can then overlay it or print them and look and go, okay. Okay. Everything lines up like this. Let me go get a known good because I'm not buying an eight-channel lab scope because that's just retarded. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, without knowing the manual setup, if you always did the auto and you ended up with four or five volts on your screen, it gets too crowded and then you can't read it right and it becomes other issues and I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's one of the reasons that I – like using the picos with the students is because you could download the demo software for free onto your laptop and not be connected to a scope and get up the four channels and go to town i tell them just do you know I, i have goals for them to achieve but i'm like don't worry about breaking something if it's really messed up just x out and restart and you'll be fine uh and i think that again is a really good learning tool just to get to know the usage and i don't i don't let them use the auto feature or you know, presets just i want you to know where you're at on your time base and your voltage scale on whatever you're looking at i want you to have an idea of what realm we're in when you're looking at that line go across the screen
2: yeah and it kind of would end up le- leading to an auto setup but yeah, the advantage of that automotive drop-down menu of going in there and, you know, not that it's very rarely vehicle-specific, but fairly decent generic explanations of certain systems. So if they want to, you know, you're coming up on the ignition unit in your engine performance section. Um they, they the help menu or not help menu, the automotive menu, the drop down menu, they can go in there and read about ignition systems. you know, and I'm not saying it's like you know haywood level, but it's it's good it's a it's a good um, kind of a cover you know good overview, there's uh, kind of diagrams, photos, and then you have some waveforms and then a lot of them, and I think they're keep getting a little bit a little bit better and better is. Breaking down the waveform, what you're looking at, you know, the popular one always being ignition, right?
1: Um, Sure.
2: And breaking down (laughs) the primary voltage or secondary voltage and stuff like that. What is, what are you looking at? What does this part mean? What does this part mean or represent probably a better word?
3: So for me, learning a scope really came down to the uh, Fords with the coil on plugs and the misfires. Um, Because before somebody told me about mode six, the only thing I knew was the scope and, you know, snap on when you had the modus, they had a special Ford coil on plug adapter. You could just put right over it. And my boss bought it cause he had a modus. And I mean, I was in UTI and we didn't really know about mode six too much. Even at the UTI days, I, I, I think it kind of came out later. <laughs> once Ford realized even their techs couldn't fix them <laughs> to look at mode six, but that's how I really learned to scope with them stupid coils, man. I must have done thousands of them. And and it really became second nature at a point that it didn't matter. I could set it up so fast at the shop to scope them. And and it's like anything else we do in the automotive industry. Like, I don't do nuts and bolts every day. But if you, if, if Fanzo looks at a bolt and says, oh, that's a 10, you know it's a 10 millimeter bolt. I look at a bolt, I, I can roughly guess what's in three sizes now because I don't think
2: that many <laughs> bolts out anymore. Clearly, you don't hang out with me in the shop because that's what I do. <laughs> I'm like, uh, might I'm pretty be sure a that's a 10. So I grabbed the <laughs> 9, 10, and 11. <laughs> and then I have to go back and get the 13 because I was,
3: <laughs> no. But when I was doing nuts and bolts every day, I could look at a bolt and be like, oh, that's a 10. And I, I, you got it. Oh, that's an 11. You knew. Yeah. And I mean, it was funny. Everybody jokes around too about calibrated torque wrenches in your wrist. You knew at a certain point if you used a torque wrench enough what 80 foot pounds felt like in your, your small wrench. Scoping's the same way. I mean, yeah. if, if people would really sit down and do as much work with a scope and practice like we all did and we joke around about now, They'd be proficient at it within a couple months. I mean, this isn't magic. I mean it's very straightforward yeah. and it doesn't matter what scope you have. they all work the same once you learn the manual settings and that's what the brilliance of this is. I mean, whether you have a pico an a t s uh a u scope, the Altel scope, which their new scope seems pretty decent, it's wireless um or if you have the old Altel four channel, I mean I don't think it matters. Heck, my first scope I bought was the Bosch MTS 5200. It was $9,000 for the four-channel color. I got every accessory. It was an amazing scope to have, but man, I paid dearly for it.
2: Man, that scope taught me all about aliasing and um, that the charging port shared (laughs) the same ground as the scope channel. (laughs) had this Ford uh, Ranger, so it would have been obd1 so i had a breakout box on it 60 pin breakout box and a very very intermittent stall and every time uh i had my breakout box on there and i had the 5100 which was the black and white or the monochrome version of the 5200 the 5200 was color otherwise i think they were exactly the same
3: yeah that was the only difference and that's why i bought the 5200 i wanted color because you know
2: Well, the 5100 battery was worse than the LS2000 battery, so (laughs) we always had to have that plugged in. Well, what would happen is with it plugged in, it fixed the problem because it created a... I was basically using the scope and charging port as a jumper wire to ground, (laughs) and I was fixing the intermittently uh, ground going open. So I man, hours of driving this stupid truck, trying to get it to stall, never stalled customer would come and get it and they wouldn't make it out of the parking lot and it was dying it's like you god you know i hook up all my stuff the customer go for a ride it's like oh man it must be must be you well technically they're right it was me it was i was fixing it with the scope
3: yeah the 5200 had a great battery it lasted most of the day um you know at least three or four hours but yeah i (laughs) i don't know if they were ground connected or not because i never checked
2: (laughs) and then the uh those scopes along with the snap-ons were pretty bad about it, but I think uh snap-ons uh, digital signal processing was slightly better that you could have a fairly fast, you know, and fast being relative, but fairly fast pulse train, like a, a square wave, whatever it may be, a crank sensor or something like that, you know, especially in the, like the photo uh, electric, you know, uh, crank sensors or cam sensors, RPM sensors, whatever you want to call it. You would, um, uh, get the square wave on there and maybe you'd have like you know four peaks on there four squares cycles you start slowing the scope down right and normally this would squeeze it down to something called wallpaper where it's just a black thick you know thick black or whatever color i guess their channel is would be on the 5100 it was black (laughs) just wallpaper it was just this you couldn't see anything it was just this big wide black mark across the screen that's what you would expect, but the 5100 on the faster signals wouldn't do that. You'd start slowing it down. It would squash them together, squash them together, and then there's a point where if you slowed it down one more um, setting, and what I mean by slowing down means putting more time on the screen, using a longer time base, so going from you know 20 milliseconds per division to 50 milliseconds per division, it would go, all of a sudden, it would explode open into a completely believable square wave again with, you know, maybe I'm slowing it down. I get 10 P 10 cycles. I slow it down one more time and it opens up and I've got, I've got six of them and they look like a legitimate square wave, <laughs> but that can't happen. It's impossible. Right. Right. It was a scope aliasing. It was redrawing a perfectly believable waveform and, and incorrectly and improperly.
3: Now Weird. I th- think that was a problem on the 5100s but i know on the 52 that i bought each channel had its own processor which is why i ended up buying it over the snap-on because it had basically four times the capability of a snap-on because it was each channel had its own dedicated processor so maybe that was the difference between the 51 and the 52 besides color
2: yeah i mean (laughs) i never had
3: that issue yeah
2: that's
3: crazy i actually lost it into a uh a Dodge Cummings um, cooling fan. You know the clutch oh, no. fan? I was scoping something and the clutch fan kicked on and it scared the bejesus out of me and I fell off the truck and I heard this really loud boom noise. Coolant was everywhere and I realized that when it startled me, I had hit one of my leads with my hand and it pulled my whole scope in. Oh,
0: oh no! <laughs> there was no. no
3: more. It was a good excuse to buy a Pico though. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that was nice about that, um, I don't know if you had it, but their secondary wand was yes. unbelievable. Yeah. I really wish I could get get it to work on my Pico, but it had that fancy connector that screws in, yep. um, and it's got like 12 pins on it. But it was nice, man. It had these like ball and socket joints, and you could coil that sucker all the way. And then it also had the wire loops that you could take a coil out, stick it down in, and it ha- I had 12 wire loops, so I could do – 12 coils if I wanted
2: yeah I mean if you were kind of a scope guy especially like back to the engine analyzer types the sun scopes quote-unquote if that was what you were coming from and I don't know that I was necessarily coming from that but you know I had been trained on that type of stuff and it was very appealing to have that type of capability the 5100 was a no-brainer I mean that's it did that so much better than Snap-on. Uh, it wasn't even funny, and with with adapters and it had the different settings, uh, you know, superimposed, raster, all that. And, and Modis eventually ended up with that too. Uh, but you know, the fifty-one hundred, it was such a no-brainer. It's just the problem was, as a four-channel lab scope, you had to be careful. And but that's a learning experience too, right? I, I guess I went through that. I would say. Buying what I could afford or what the shop would buy me and working my way up through scopes to find them, you know, as I gained in ability and, um, you know, knowledge, I suppose, skill, I had to get different scopes. I had to get different scopes. And now I think, you know, we're talking about the U-scope that's affordable and, you know, very, very capable and uh, a lot of these other scopes you know pico's been mentioned a lot that it's it's probably a a pretty good investment it's hopefully something the shop would take on but if you're going to your skill level is probably not going to exceed the scope you know unless you're buying one of those you know um two and four channel um what are they called like entry level scopes or like the hand
1: text or something like that.
2: Well, hand text, but I was also thinking like Pico has like a 22. Oh, they have them weird... two or 2205, 2105. No, 2105.
3: I call them knockoff, uh, knockoff automotive Picos. That's what I refer to them they're as. They're really,
2: <laughs> they're attractive because of the price. Right. But the problem is, is, you know, you're getting what you pay for and it's not so much like it's a pile of crap. It's just for what you need. It's not, it just doesn't have that capability. So, you know, if you drop the money on one of these chances of you outgrowing it, you know, your skill level, exceeding it is pretty remote. Maybe, maybe the technology on the car, meaning, you know, what's the fastest speeds we're going to see on a car is probably network, right? You know, can now flex ray. I was gonna say flex ray. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Those type of speeds, depending on the level you're going to try to scope them at, which I just don't think we're going to do, right? You're going to look for physical layers, and you're moving on with life. Uh, physical layer, just a fancy term for um, on a, a CAN signal. Your physical layer is the um, 1.5 to 2.5 volts, 2.5 to 3.5 volts. So CAN lows, 1.5 volt to 2.5 volts, square wave, if you will. And then can high is two and a half to three and a half. That's what you would expect. That's the physical layer. So does it meet that? Do you need the you know blazing speed to do that. Probably not.
1: Have you guys seen? Uh, I haven't used it, but I saw somewhere on the internet there was a scope that would connect to your phone or a tablet, and so via Bluetooth. And so you could hook up the leads to stuff and then you could watch it on your phone or something. Looked like a kind of a cool idea to have something like that.
3: I'm mobile. My phone rings all freaking day. <laughs> the last thing I want is to try to be scoping something. And fans will call me going, hey, man, how do I program this Toyota?
2: Leave you me go, alone. Come on.
3: Because <laughs> the middle t- of
2: scoping something. And I wouldn't believe him. And so then we'd <laughs> argue about him never scoping.
3: <laughs> yeah. And the worst part is, is until the recent iOS, like 14 update, when somebody called and you were in a program, it took over your whole freaking screen. Yeah. So that was the worst. Now, at least on the end, they finally fixed it in the iPhone and now it just pops up at the top of the screen. Okay.
2: And if so. I was calling them to help me with program something, it's going to be something jacked up. Like, yeah, can I do a used, um, <laughs> yeah, it's... how do I program this Ford BCM into this Toyota? <laughs> can I do that? And then he'll be like, yeah, sure. You just do this. <laughs> but everybody knew that. I made a post about it. Didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Use the search function. Click. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I did that to somebody today, actually.
0: <laughs>
3: uh, I Look, I, I think we kind of talked about it a lot, but tech's got to realize that you buy a scope you can afford if you're going to buy one. And there's nothing wrong with what you buy. As long as you're willing to use it, They're, the worst thing I see is I go to a shop and they've got a scope sitting in a box and the leads are still wrapped in plastic. It's like, why did you spend the money? I mean, it's a waste. Uh, it, but if I got a tech who's like, hey, man, I just bought this Modus and I really want to scope this. I don't know how. I don't care if I get 20 cars that day. My day has now just stopped and we are scoping this freaking car for this tech with that Modus. Or, hey, I got this U-scope because you showed me it last time. Can you give me 10 minutes of running through it? Sure. No problem. Um, and the scope, if you go to YouTube, Justin Morgan did fantastic walkthrough videos on yep. that bad boy. I mean, yep. hands down to them for making them videos because <laughs> I learned more about the scope from Justin than I even thought I knew. And, yeah. you know, they updated the firmware not that long ago and it does even more. So,
2: And recently, George put got the uh, manual together, which is really good. The user manual.
3: We have a user's manual now. You do. Oh, i have to order one of them bad boys. <laughs> I will say, don't plug the scope into a wall outlet, though. We have. No, oh
2: man, I used. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well,
2: I used to work for uh, you know the largest distributor of Pico in the United States, which eventually became Pico USA. And um, I kid you not, the worst thing that could ever happen. Is a tech ordering a scope, having it shipped to their house and having it arrive on Friday. <laughs> Guaranteed. Put this it lead. was getting shipped back. <laughs> that thing was getting blown up. <laughs> you just can't help themselves. Sitting at home. Got to try it. All right. Hey, well, no matter how I many scope?
3: attenuators oh. you put in it, it doesn't help.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can go in the garage and scope something with on the car, but God, his outlet's right here. <laughs> <laughs> Bang! Done. <laughs> Does it at least make a cool noise? I've I yet to pop a channel on one, so I don't know.
3: I really want to do it. I just don't want to buy the scope again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But I mean, I I will say I got an all-telescope um, when I was helping him. With projects, they they mailed me one and said, "Hey, just play with it. Let us know what you think." Because I I've had an Elite for years, but I'm like, "Why would I use your scope? I got a Pico." And then I got it, and I'm like, "Oh, this thing's really kind of nice." Because <laughs> you know, again, it came in a nice little case, kind of like my wave scope But if I already had my Elite out, it was only one more case to grab, and it was smaller significantly than the Pico case. Cause it didn't have near the leads in it, but it at least worked. And so for a while, I, I would tell Tex, well, if you really want a four channel, just buy the Altel four channel. And I haven't got to try the new one yet on the, uh, I think it's the Ultra has the VCM one that has the wireless four channel scope. I'm dying to play with one of those just to see it, but yeah. that would be even sweeter.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think having a touchscreen for the scope, uh, the laptops that we use at school. For the Picos or touch screens you can do the pinch and zoom. And, man, does that make it easy to use uh, just navigating and changing the shape of the waveform. Maybe that is, you know, going around, figuring out those user settings. But for just ease of use, you can change it to exactly the size you want and scroll through the waveform. I love doing it that way. So having it on a tablet, that's got to be pretty handy. I haven't used the Autel yet, but...
3: Well, if you wanna try it, I will mail you mine and you can play with it. Because I'm telling you, once you use it, you'll be like crap, I gotta buy one of these. <laughs> it's just so convenient. it's like it's like the U scope, right? Like it's the next level of the U scope to me. Like the U scope, okay, it did one channel. I saw this camshaft waveform. I know the camshaft works. But now is it in sync with the crankshaft because I stole this no start? Like it, it to me is the next level. And and then you have the altel, if you get the ultra, you can dual screen. So now you can look at live data and the scope at the same time. I mean, that's really taking it to the, the the end all be all. Um one of the things I was hoping Bosch was gonna do um, back in the day when they had the Master Tech VCI out, they had ESI tronic. I really was hoping they were gonna come out with a with a PC based lab scope so I could dual screen that because Now, it's like the only reason I like my Pico is I can have my Pico on laptop A, my factory tool on laptop B, and I can look at both at the same time. Um, The problem is is I have two laptops out now. Um, But I can't – like I'm – the Pico takes too long to update when I need an update on four partitions. So now I have a dedicated Pico laptop.
2: Oh, yeah, sure.
3: (laughs) I I will say I like the idea of a surface though. Um, I, th- I think Burmaster Michael Burmaster was telling me he bought some surfaces for the Pico and he loved it because it was small, it's fast, it's light, and it has a touchscreen. Um, none of my laptops are touchscreen. Everyone, I I will not pay extra for the touchscreen. Um, just because for programming you don't need it, right? Like, yeah. what are you gonna do? Touch the button on the screen? <laughs> so, yeah. I I kind of don't buy touchscreens. But he's like, oh no, it's great and. Now that you're talking about it, Sean, now I'm going to have to go to Best Buy tomorrow and buy a <laughs> freaking touchscreen.
2: Just ex- really expensive friendships, you know?
0: I know. <laughs> yeah.
3: We always got to one-up each other. Oh, you bought that new scope? Oh, Yeah, well, oh, that's yeah. nice for you. Overnight, that bad boy, so it can look like I had that scope too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that looks cool. I'm going to have to get one.
3: Has anybody used the ATS scope? I've only oh, seen videos oh, yeah. of it. You've used it? I oh, mean, yeah. is it? Is it is it as clumsy as it looks? Because that thing looks like a nightmare every time I see a video of it.
2: Well, yeah, and I want to be careful, right? Because I, I think it's capable, especially as you get into the, um, uh, the, the. Is it the pros? Right. The I'm e-scope talking about pros like and... the
3: eight channel that's on the tablet. Yeah. The, the well,
2: they top. have different. They haven't. They used to at least have different levels. You had the the elite, which I think was four, right? And then there's the eScope. And then an Escope Pro, and there's some uh, sample rate uh, differences, but ultimately, yeah, the the user interface, depending on where you come from, it is a little more um, or less intuitive, maybe than some others. And there's, if you're used to how, you know, a Pico allows lets you move channels, um, so you, you want to slide a and b in a certain way away from c and d and you, you just click and drag and you move them um and unless there's been a change recently you couldn't really do that you had a different way of going about that that seemed a little more tedious but it has other functions like the built in um uh, rotational cursors that are just bang bang and they're up and you're lo- you're looking at it whatever you're going to use them for namely you know most most often, by far, in cylinder compression, cranking or running, you know it's a couple clicks and it's up, and you, you know, adjust it a little bit and uh, you're rolling. So, you know, there's positives and negatives uh, to both, but yeah, I think just straight up user interface, Pico's a little cleaner, um, a little more intuitive, ATS a little bit less so. But again, there's there's other. Th- uh, functions that it t- tends to do better uh, or more quickly. So, I, I, you know, it's Ford versus Chevy versus Chrysler versus Toyota versus,
3: yeah. And then, you know, there's that great, uh, what is it, Pico N gap complaint that everybody complains about?
2: <laughs> well, right. Yeah, it like was, you get into so, the de- <laughs> that has to do with, yeah, it has to do with how they're capturing and storing, um, data. And if I was better prepared, I'd remember segmented memory, segmented memory. So, okay, man, I'm probably going to get shot, but (laughs) do
3: it, do it, do it.
2: You have to understand when I say this stuff, it's not condescending. I think I'm just being honest and it's, it's not, it's not saying anything bad about anything. It's just, this is how it captures data. So you have, um, snap-on and ats capture into a you know ats is an i think almost well maybe not almost but a very large buffer okay and then when it hits when it fills that up it dumps it off the one end and brings it in on the other end okay so it just kind of scrolls through snap-on's the same much smaller buffer buffer is scope memory so it's a we're talking about digital storage oscilloscopes. So it measures the voltage, you know, a, a point in time. It measures that. It stores it in memory. That's how these all work. Pico kind of does the same thing. But the thing is, is you've got this large, large buffer. It's, it's huge. And the amount of time you have on the screen versus, uh, so the, the time base you have versus the number of samples you're requesting. So how you're setting up the scope determines how many of these sample points are going to be on your screen. And then a scope just connects the dots. That's why we have the lines, but they're made up of little dots, little sample points. What Pico will do then is if I am not using up that entire buffer for this screen, I will capture screens. The screens, though, end to end, are not seamless. There is a gap, and depending on a few different things—version of Pico, laptop or PC capability, you know, horsepower, if you will—and and then the time base determines how long that gap is. And in some cases, it was significant. Now, granted, you might be capturing like you know a minute worth of sample points. But then that gap is going to be, let's just say, two seconds just for a number. Guess where if it's intermittent, where it's going to happen <laughs> <laughs> every time. Okay? Yeah. So that was labeled the Pico gap and it, you know, ruffles a lot of feathers with certain um, a group of fans of Pico or, you know, Pico people. Whatever, you, whatever we're gonna call them, <laughs> Pico Nerds, Pico Purple, Pico People Eaters, or whatever. <laughs> that's a Minnesota Vikings joke for those of you that don't know.
3: Purple People Eater,
2: right? <laughs> but so it would ruffle feathers, and but it's legitimate. That that's what it is. So it's not that their buffer works so much differently than the others, but it's what they're trying to do with the unused portion of the buffer. That could get you in a little bit of trouble. And there's ways to defeat that, and they're not difficult. You know, and I don't I don't see a lot of it online where people are posting up like, well, Pico screwed me on this. Yeah. Dude, filling the Pico it, gap.
3: I'm tagging you in it in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Vanslo, guess gap. what? <laughs> um, no, I only brought it up because like when I was looking at buying a scope, right? Cause what is, what do we all do? When we're going to drop five grand on a scope. You, you Google like reviews of the scope and it came up. And I remember, I I remember having this conversation with you somewhere and, and it was at a tool show and you, we had a Pico run in for something and you're like, well, let me show you. Cause you could trick it to, yeah. to, to, because you had a setup, you knew the waveform pattern. It was coming. You're like, let me show you what the Pico gap is. And, and we could demonstrate it. And you're like, here it is. Look how small of a gap it is. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> but it was one of those things that it's nice to talk about here. Because you talked about earlier the alias graphing in the MTS 5100. So I felt like it was worth mentioning just in case somebody would ever get it and go, well, how come nobody told me? Well, at least we could say we we warned you it might happen. I mean... I've been using the Pico for six years. I've never noticed it. So
2: it it, it goes same with the snap ons. If you don't understand how it's collecting data and the um, shortcomings of some of its performance characteristics. So sample rate versus that memory. If you're not aware of that, how that all (laughs) correlates. If you don't use the scope properly, you're setting yourself up to alias because it has to happen. If you if you thought of it a little bit differently from maybe you know for a bad, really bad example of Pico perspective it would make sense why it's aliasing. But you know the guy selling you the snap on scope doesn't understand how it works. It's I don't know if it's even as really his job or her job. You know maybe the I don't think they call them tech systems guys anymore. You know where you had the The truck with all the cool stuff on it, right? The smoke machines and the scopes and the scan tools and all that. I don't know if they have those guys anymore or those salespeople anymore, but I don't know that they would even know it, to be quite honest. But once you understand it and you understand why and it makes sense, then you just use the scope in such a way that it won't happen. Or, you know, it's going to be a pretty screwy situation where it would, where you're just trying to scope something Mu- a signal that's much much faster than that a thing is really capable of handling and you're going to run into that with you know maybe a lot of them except pico because they're
1: kind of absurdly fast and that's yeah like you can put p- well, well you can put pico such a big time big, base on there and and then just zoom in for you know to the smallest detail so that's what i always do is i just put a bunch of time on there unless i'm trying to trigger a specific event and then once whatever happens, happens. I just zoom in on it. So I I have everything on that one, that one screen.
2: And I think that's what would happen with the Snap-on users was you'd see these classes or stuff online with using a Pico where that's, that's the technique, right? Get a lot of, a lot of data on the screen and then uh, zoom in for detail. Well, Snap-on can't zoom in,
3: right? No, Snap-on's backwards.
2: Exactly, that's the best way to think about it
3: <clears throat> and and I came from the snap on world, and that was my big struggle, right? So I used to have the picture that I wanted and I'd let it run forever and then I would zoom out to see where the glitch was and and I could I could then zoom back into the same level I was at, but you couldn't go any further in, but on my Pico when I got it, it was the complete opposite. It was set a ten minute time base let it record, look where your anomaly is, then click and zoom in. And so for a long time, it I would say good six, seven months of me using my Pico, that was where I struggled, was how to zoom in instead of back out or, or scroll. Because the other thing that was really interesting was, is like you mentioned, the Pico only does screen captures. So if I had two waveforms and one of them was kind of off the screen a little on the snap on, you could just scroll to the left yeah. and it would move it over so I could see it and on the Pico. I was like, oh, it's not there.
2: Next page.
1: <laughs> my my relative compression waveforms are almost always split between the two screens. Somehow I managed to time that perfectly every single time. <laughs> so I know what you mean. So we
2: have to introduce
1: <laughs> you to single trigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You teach me how to use that. <laughs>
3: I want to learn – we have not talked about triggers, but on the LS2000, when you had it, if you didn't set a trigger up, you could not get a picture. I mean it would just go wherever the flip it wanted. It didn't care. So you had – you were forced to learn triggers, and and I think it's a lost skill. Now, the Pico has more triggers than I even can think of Um, the other day. (laughs) The other day, I really wanted to learn how to use the pulse width trigger because I wanted it to stop at the number one crank position, which was wider than any other spot. 25 minutes later, I just gave up and set the time base to 10 minutes <laughs> because I couldn't figure out how to get it to stop there.
2: <laughs> See, finally, something I could have helped you with. You know
3: I. You know what's funny? I was like, I should call Matt on this. No, I don't want to sound like an idiot because <laughs> this, this can't be that hard. 25 minutes later, I'm like... I, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. Forget it. Five minutes. I'll move it on. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, triggers has got to be something people need to learn in, in and there, there's basic ones, right? So the, the single point, the repetition trigger. um, And then you need to know how the trigger is triggering upslope, downslope. Um, those are all important. The actual trigger set point where it's going to trigger means a lot. Um, like if you're doing a, uh an injector, you don't want to set it at nine volts. It's going to trigger all the time. You're yep. going to set that sucker at 50 volts because then it's only going to trigger on the, on the flyback. So there's tricks to a trigger to get that picture just right. And if you don't know them, boy, oh boy, will you struggle? <laughs>
2: yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, like with Sean's scenario with the relative compression, you know, using the single triggers really just to help you out when you're by yourself, you can't have, somebody in the driver's seat cranking it for you on command that you can set up the trigger to start drawing the pattern when you want it to start drawing and probably during the uh, you know stall current portion or in rush whatever you want to call that and the the initial spike when you uh, hit the key and you can set the scope up to start drawing that you know one division in and you want to capture oops you want to capture you know 10 cool. seconds. Yeah, it's sound like a lightsaber.
0: Yeah,
3: sorry, that was <laughs> really cool.
2: It's that cold up here. I had to slice open a taunta.
0: <laughs>
2: but yeah, some of that stuff, some of those features, you know, a lot of it's for just for either laziness or just make your life easier when you, you can't have a you know sidekick there.
3: You mean I'm the only one that has a 12-foot USB 3.0 <laughs> cable for my Pico so that I can sit the Pico on
2: my laptop when I'm <laughs> cranking the car? You do that so you can sit in the AC.
3: <laughs> no, because usually the car doesn't start. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think triggers is really important for people to learn. Um, some things you just don't ever try to trigger. Networks. Forget it
0: right
3: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean eh, eh, the only time i've triggered a network is on recently i've noticed they have that like end of message peak that seems slightly higher or lower than all the other peaks so i may set a trigger to hit that um just because then i can get a consistent pattern as i'm looking and unplugging modules but most times i just never trigger a network i just let it run
2: Yeah. yeah i mean that's the board i'm in right i check to see that it hits those voltages I want to see and then, you know, I'll just kind of get a feel for the overall look, if that makes sense.
1: I think using them on uh, ignition stuff has been really helpful for me to, you know, if I'm looking for a misfire that's not consistent, setting up that trigger for the ignition, really, really handy to just watch that one one event repeat over and over again. And, okay, there it is. And I can pause and go back. So. That's I'm trying to think of where I use them the most. That's probably it.
3: I use one in cylinders a ton. Um, I always set my trigger to be the upslope of the compression. And I set it usually about 75, 80 PSI to make sure that if the, uh, the exhaust valve isn't opening, I don't, I don't hit that trigger too, because, or if it's got a warm cam lobe, it'll you'll see the exhaust bike, but I don't want it to trigger again. because um, I always do repetitive trigger. I let that sucker run for thirty pages. I've burned up more starters. I wait till it gets to 30 pages. I don't care, it ain't my car. <laughs> oh, it needs an engine and a starter. <laughs> but um yeah, that's another one. Um if I am doing well, or um, a sink like cam crank sink. I will try to set a trigger up on something. Um, that's where I really wish I understood more of the pulse width triggers because I feel that would be valuable. But I will set a trigger up because I, and and if I'm really doing a sink and I want a, an exact trigger, I'll do the ignition at that point. Um, the number one coil to be exact, so I know where top dead center is. Um, <clears throat> if the coil is really easy to get out, you're going to laugh at me. I'll put my WPS in and, and really get number one, top dead center. And the reason I ended up using my WPS one time was I had a car and the only known good I had was a crank with a WPS. I don't know why the guy posted it that way in the Pico library, but that's how he posted it. So that's what I did to compare mine to his and Sure enough, mine was out of time, but I was like, oh, that's kinda nice because I know exactly where number one is now. You know we didn't talk about math channels. Oh yeah. <laughs> I uh I learned something from one of the YouTube videos about setting your time base to like twenty-seven minutes or something stupid for an ABS sensor and letting it paint that black page, and then you minus out something so that when it goes when you have the glitch, it's the only spot that's left. <laughs> I watched a YouTube video and then did it because I YouTubed how to do it <laughs> for my one car. But I was like, man, this was a great trick. I, I, I can't even explain how it worked now because it's been so long since I did it. But I like the math channels when you need them.
1: I was watching a video when uh, on I'm Bernie Thompson's that he's got on YouTube, and he was using the, the frequency for the crankshaft sensor. Uh, to find to find misfires you know the crank acceleration and deceleration and i played around with it a little bit myself but i i definitely am far from perfecting that i don't know if you guys have messed around with that
2: when pico first came out with the math channels that was something i did for fun um you were such a geek well it's partly my job too at the time
3: oh okay.
2: you know and uh just yeah just to see what Would it work? Is it viable? And that's why I run into problems is the viability of it. That, gosh, you know, most scan data kind of points to the cylinder. And if it's wrong, there's other ways to figure out which cylinder is really misfiring. And it's so rare. There's certain car lines you are a little more hypersensitive towards. You know, certain Volkswagen Audis, I'm a little more hypersensitive to some maybe earlier GMs. Uh, but really, now, man, I don't, re- I don't remember the last time I ran into a misidentified cylinder miss. So I, you usually kind of have an idea of which cylinder is misfiring, or cylinders, and then you're you're moving on. Um, and it, depending on, well, at least with from Picos, I've I've not done the ETS one, so I, I shouldn't say. And I've never, I have not used the uh, USB autoscope uh, for that with one of their scripts that um, with the Pico, when you graph the frequency, almost every crank sensor is encoded. So you get these dropouts, consistent sure. dropouts, right? Cause you're looking at the frequency and just, it just, you know, it messes with you and you can use math to try to help
1: um, minimize those. I had a Jeep Cherokee that was sudden. It was, basically counting misfires like crazy i think it was on two cylinders and it was not missing like at all i mean the engine was running perfect but it was flashing the check engine light misfires misfires and it ended up being the crankshaft sensor and it was a auto zone one or something and they replaced it with a Oem one and this is my you know, surprise we had-
0: <laughs> <face>. <laughs> <laughs> i I
1: scoped the before and after because I wanted to see you know, what, what's the difference on this thing? And I was messing around with some math channels and stuff. And I don't know, I wasn't able to see <laughs> a difference in it. I was kind of surprised. I was like, well, oh, I thought I'd see something in there, uh, but maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe with some different eyes on it, maybe just, there is something to see, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And
2: the math channels really, if you think about a scope, it kind of is a. um, kind of like a calculator right it, it subtracts voltage um from the com uh lead if you will common lead or quote-unquote ground lead from the uh the other and we're typically you know a battery You would see 12 volt difference or 12.6 volt difference that's that's what it does and then the math channels um are just allowing you to use the software to calculate certain things Looking at the, the waveform, so frequency is a p- really common one. Pulse width, or if you're looking at uh, network signals, you can subtract um, one from the other, uh, and and kind of look at it the way a um, the, the module would see that. You could also do that. Um, I think Chris Groff mentioned that. Um, just going, taking your leads across, can can high can low. Here, you would be scoping them separately and then using math channel to do that. Um, or you could, <clears throat> I think you add them together and then you just get that flat five volts, which can kind of come in handy for looking for intermittence, um, especially in the, especially at the, like the dealership level, right? That's um, They see it a lot or mobile techs that do a lot of work for collision shops where there might be some wiring damage and the network oh. is getting intermittently <laughs> shorted. They can get that nice flat five volts using the math channel and then walk around kicking door or kicking um uh, fenders or opening slamming doors or hitting seats or floors, you know, wherever they think maybe this uh harness issue may exist. And then you could see a drop potentially, you know, on a good day, you would see a drop out and go, OK, I'm going to focus in this area of the car and see if I can't track down this damage and you know it's probably going to be on the side it got hit on but that, that's those are some scenarios i can think of at the top of my head for math
3: i use the math channel to figure out how much ohms a, a solenoid is in a transmission oh, yeah. <laughs> put my amp clamp around it command it mm-hmm. on and then go up oh, yep it's not within ohm spec because <laughs> they never tell you how many amps that sucker yeah. should take they always tell you how many ohms it should be and it never fails it it will intermittently set a circuit fault, but you're like it's it just fine, and so I'll drive it around with my amp clamp on it, and I have my math channel running up top, and it just tells me how much resistance is going, which is kind of funny because you know it's doing the math for you. So when the solenoid's off, it's like goofed. But then when it comes on, as it ramps up, you get this varying resistance, which is interesting to try to explain somebody that, the, yes, the resistance is different until it fully opens. But at least you can check it.
1: That's pretty cool.
2: Yeah. yeah I, um. Another one for Pico, really before <clears throat> the last few updates of 6 and 7. Um, no, we are not allowed to out.
3: talk about 7. 7 <laughs> is garbage. It should be you, wiped off the face of the earth.
2: You couldn't invert. You know, there wasn't really an invert function on Pico. So you could do it with math. And um, a friend of mine calls me up. He's like, you know, I'm tr- using a uh, channel trying to do duty cycle, but I need to invert it. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about it. And I come up with this just convoluted equation that worked and i thought i was a freaking genius and i send it off to pico like hey i figured this out and they're so nice (laughs) (laughs) yeah he gave me a nice pat on the back and then told me how to do it with like one keystroke just put a negative in front of the the channel that would invert it
3: (laughs) You uh, you really Such appreciate how nice they said it, though, didn't you? I did. I really
2: did. Because if it was me, it would have been. A lot I'm
3: thinking more... how I would have sent that email back.
2: It been a lot more sarcastic.
3: Yeah. I'm thinking it would have been like, you really wasted that much time to come up with this when you could have just put a negative sign in front yeah. of that. Yeah, that is a great <laughs>
2: equation. You came up with that all by yourself. Are you sure you didn't call your math teacher?
3: <laughs>
2: and then. Yeah, here here's the way to do it. Just put this negative symbol in front of it and I'll invert it. Oh.
3: Yeah, I don't like Pico oh. seven. I used it once and then deleted it.
2: It's it's growing on me and then sometimes sometimes I'll get a little frustrated with it, but uh it's growing on me. I
3: growing on you like a cancer or growing on
2: you like <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think you know, when six first came out, I hated it i wrote up uh, quite a few emails complaining about it and then it became like the best thing ever and seven's kind of following that a little bit the same way where you know i don't know if it's i don't normally consider myself somebody that's resistant to change but maybe in this case that's exactly what's going on but six six worked so well for so long and it's laid out a certain way that you're just used to and you can do what you need to do so fast and even though seven um i think you can do any function with no more than three clicks um which can't be said with six it's not it's not intuitive yet
1: yeah Uh, it's a little uh, glitchy still i've been trying to mess around with it and that's
3: I'd rather have 5 clicks and have it work than try to figure out which 3 clicks it takes to make
2: it work. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, they'll I don't know. they'll it'll get better. They'll make it. They'll make it better. They have to, right? I mean, that's their that's it. That's what they got. Yep. We could always
3: burn it and start over. Just hack <laughs> into their server, delete all the downloads. <laughs> Here you go.
2: I, I, would, I would like to see them get this where it needs to go. And then I'm kind of excited to see what they can do with Pico Diagnostics. You know, Pico Diagnostics is oh, super. Oh, I love
3: that program. Yeah,
2: super, super useful, of course, for NVH. But um, I would like to see some of this, the other stuff fleshed out more and more. And, you know, that could be a really powerful tool. It's even at, you know, at the training, trade school level, learning level would be great uh, to see it you know, this way I'm Pico diagnostics and then, okay, let's try to do it ourselves in the scope. I think that would be, that would make some pretty good exercises. The,
3: the relative compression in the Pico diagnostics is by far the greatest invention since the bread slicer.
1: <laughs> is that where you have the WPS just in one cylinder? Yeah. And Any
3: cylinder you want, you put an amp clamp around it, you crank it over and it is dead nuts accurate as long as and here's the caveat because I've learned this the hard way as long as you don't pick the bad cylinder. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
3: If you pick the bad cylinder, your good cylinders will show like 24,000 psi of compression, <laughs> <laughs> which instantly tells you
2: there's You've something wrong slick 50 in this thing, dang.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and that engine restore really works. <laughs> Um, I use that a lot. Uh, matter of fact, when I said, that's the first tool I pull out of for misfires, that's actually the first thing I do with my WPS is I slam it in a cylinder, put my amp clamp on there. And I run that relative compression because at that point in time, I have all four, six or eight cylinders. And I know within, I'm going to say within 10 PSI, what every cylinder is roughly at. And I've actually, I had a four cylinder Kia, so it was real easy to stick it in number one run it and then actually go through each one and check it and it was it was it was within 10 or 15 psi i forget now but it was close enough to where i was like okay i can trust these numbers because first time you do it and you see like 180 180 180 130 180 180 175 130 you're like "Mm, those numbers right like you you do you question it but they're they work i mean it's nice
1: I mean, and, i'm gonna have to mess around with that a little bit because i actually haven't done too much with the diagnostic application
3: and it's really nice because it if you know the firing order you can even know exactly what cylinder is low in compression i mean you don't have to guess so some of the cars where you can only get to like the front three plugs you can put it in the first hole and go oh the firing order is one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, well i'm in hole four Cause one, two, three are in the back. So I'm at four. So then you can start on the Pico. Oh, I'm at four. So this is five, six, one, two, three. Oh, look, two, two is low a- and you're done. I believe if I remember it correctly, the WPS is always in hole a.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. If not, it should be. I think I've been burned by that, but that's a while ago. Yeah. That's, that's a while ago. So, and I sent us a little bit of a complaint and that I don't know. You know, it, not that my complaints an mean asterisk. anything, but it gets put into a bin and hopefully enough other people had said anything.
3: Yeah. It has an asterisk next to the one that has the Pico that has yeah. the WPS in it. So you really can't screw it up. But when you're in a hurry and you're used to it, always being a it's the one time you don't pay attention to the asterisk and it burns you. Yep. Uh, the battery tester. I really like, except it is one fatal flaw. Nobody's uh, alternator comes on anymore when the car starts, so yep. I fail a lot of alternators with that. Um, yep. What else is in that?
2: Yeah, it used to be a start strategy was they'd start up and they'd full field them right away or or heavy, you know, mm-hmm. heavy it's, excitation.
3: Yeah, because they wanted to restore the battery because it just lost a whole bunch of amps. But you know the problem now is is starters don't take what they used to. We have these DC brushless rare earth ultra-low 20-amp drawing starters now because they only start your car 57 times in 10 miles.
2: Yeah, it makes liars of us all. <laughs> you got a freaking Honda Civic fails a battery test every time it comes in. Yep. <laughs> and they just keep driving it. I've never had a problem. Okay. Fails. Uh, fails miserably. Load test every time.
3: Yeah, what else is in there? The battery, the compression—I can't remember.
2: Uh, NVH, and then they kind of have that um, misfired detection based off of uh, voltage ripple.
3: Yeah. Oh, the nice thing about the compression that I forgot to mention is you can see the raw data, so right. you can actually see <clears throat> the the relative compression graph yourself. And and I lied—you don't need an am clamp. It goes off the battery voltage. Yep. So. It it really teaches you that you can do tests a different way, um. So yeah, it's it's fantastic tool. If you're not using it, you should. There you go. There, hey, look, there it is. Oh yeah, prop shaft balancing. Yeah, I've used that one a lot. You know, out there balancing
1: (laughs)
2: castle on the parking lot.
3: I bought the NVH kit from AES Wave at um. Vision couple years ago or not vision. It was that show where we were doing the RO. I forget. That's how long ago. It was. Oh
2: man. That was
3: in Atlanta. Remember that horrible show um... where there was like no attendees.
2: <laughs> you did it's the that bringing... German
3: show. Yeah, they brought I mean... in the high school students
2: auto mechanica. Yeah. yeah.
3: Auto mechanica. George, George and Carlos had an NVH kit or no, you did. Cause you were at the Pico booth and you didn't want to take it home. And so mm-hmm. George sold it to me. Cause you know, I could take it home with me then through you guys at the Pico it,
2: booth, it's too bad it wasn't better attended because you know not to get too far off track. But um, Matt and Justin Morgan are set up at the AES Wave booth with uh the formerly the um, was it the six hundred? I am six hundred. Yeah, I am. Now 600. it's the now it's known as the Autel IM six hundred eight. Six hundred eight. They had a BMW. Ca- Fem. Cast. Fem. Fem. Okay. <clears throat> that they're showing EEPROMing on with it. And I mean, it was a great, great demonstration.
3: (laughs) Which only worked once. (laughs) It should (laughs) have been.
2: (laughs) It should have had quite the crowd around it. but
3: Yeah, we we just decided somebody, Justin brought one in so we could screw with it. And we had no idea what it would do. Well, once it unlocks the FEM, it's always unlocked. Uh, once it's jailbroken, essentially it's always jailbroken. So I was like trying to get Altel Engineering to restore the jailbroken <laughs> software so we could do the demo again. And they're like, "What? We've never had somebody ask this question before." <laughs> <laughs> they were so confused why I wanted to make it jailbroken again because it just wasn't as cool of a demo when it wasn't like unlocking them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a great show. But I bought the oh anyway, I bought the NVH from you. Uh, just so I could figure out what the stupid Chevy shake was in my Silverado, which ended up being my brake rotors. (laughs) The only time I've used the NVH kit though.
2: I don't use it a lot, but when I do, it's, it's a lifesaver. And I'm not saying, I don't, I do not want to imply I really know NVH inside and out, but I kind of liken it to. You know, one of my horrific analogies that I seem to have endless supply supply of. But I liken it to you and a buddy on a road trip and a song comes on the radio and you're trying to think of the name of the band. You can't think of the name of the band. And then your buddy leans over or turns to you and says, starts with an M. Boom. You know exactly who it is. I liken the NVH software to that where you're feeling this vibration or hearing this drone and you kind of can't quite put your finger on the cause. And then you look at the drive, the the NVH data, and you put it up in the simplest of ways, you know, but the bar graphs typically are the easiest way to interpret. And now you see that it's a second order tire or something like that. And now you know exactly what it is.
3: And I will say that a second order tire could also be a brake rotor because they turn the same, <laughs> same rotation. <laughs>
2: Yeah, just, for, just
3: clarify this from experience. Yeah.
2: For, <laughs> for us, it was a Honda. um The uh, Honda pickup. Not the Pilot, but the... um Ridgeland. Ridgeland. Yeah, Honda Bridgeline oh, yeah, yeah. Had this drone. It just, you know, drowned out everything in the vehicle in about a five-mile-an-hour um, window. And, I mean... You know, the first thing you go after is motor mounts and training mounts. And these things were sacked out. I mean, it was, the engine literally was sitting on the the frame. The, the rubber was gone. So, no brainer, it's got to be motor mounts. Put the motor mounts in, then fix it.
3: Well, that sucks.
2: So, yeah, so it ends up, I think it's a, um, I think I'm right, a third order engine, which is a normal vibration, but it shouldn't be transferred into the um, passenger compartment. And it ends up, um, it was an, when you really looked and you had to really look, you saw that had an aftermarket drive shaft in it. And if you compared it to the OE drive shaft, which was three times or four times more expensive, the aftermarket drive shaft was, oh, I don't know, two, three inches longer. And, you know, you could squeeze of course, right? It fit. Yeah, But with some effort, you could get it in there, which, you know, if you didn't know better, you weren't really paying attention. It would make sense, right? It just squishes together. It makes sense. It's got to have some travel for uh, bouncing or whatever. And no, no, that was a big problem. And then the uh, Honda drive shaft was filled. You know, it had something inside like foam or something. And the uh, aftermarket one, one part of it was kind of a two-piece. And the other wasn't, and you put the new drive shaft in and fixed it immediately. And then of course, you know, you're uh, reprimanding yourself for not noticing it right away, but gosh, you know, there's a lot of people under that vehicle looking at it. Nobody looked at that drive shaft and went, well, that's aftermarket. It didn't have like the big Dorman sticker on it or anything. <laughs> Door stop. Right. It, it just, you know, you had to stop and really look and then crap.
3: Yeah, and then, you know, you're kind of excited. You have your Pico data because when you're trying to sell this customer, this drive shaft, it's stupid money. Yep. Plus your diagnostic time you've got involved in it, which you're not getting all of it back, but you're hoping to get most of it back. If it's not right, man, you're crying because to call that customer and tell them it's not fixed, it's not good.
2: Yep. And I've, I've not had it happen, but if, you know, you're doing a lot of noise, vibration, harshness, obviously, NVH. If you're doing quite a bit of it, and you do repair work, and it makes a significant improvement, you have the before and after, and you can save that, right? It's on on right. the computer, or you know, on your Google Drive or whatnot, OneDrive, whatever your whatever your choices of storage. If the customer would ever come back a couple of weeks later and be like, ah, it's doing the same thing again," or you know what, it's not better yet. You guys didn't fix my car. You have the proof. You can go for a ride and say, "Um, no, when you brought it here, (laughs) this was 96 decibels in the passenger compartment. Now it's, you know, 50. It's not the same, you know, you don't have to be a jerk about it, but you've got some data to back up what you did. I've fixed this. This is what it came in with. These are the, you know. This is where the failure was or the the issue, the concern. This is after we did the repair. You can see the before and after it's in pretty colors. You can print out the graphs, hand it to the customers.
3: You are so Carol Shelby right now.
2: Me? (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. You seen Ford versus Ferrari.
2: I, you know what? I haven't. I'm waiting for my, my kid wants to watch it with me. What the flip
3: is you need to watch it.
2: No, I know. No, I know. You're,
3: you're acting like Carol Shelby is me. Yeah. In the movie. I would be Ken Miles. I'd walk up and be like, look, jerk. It was at 58. It's at 58 now and it was at 95. I improved it by over 50%. Get the hell out of my
2: pocket. I think his job would be pretty kick ass. <laughs> his and like Lee Iacocca. Like, hey, help Watch our struggling movie. manufacturer. Let's create some awesome cars. I-, I think I could do that.
3: Watch the movie. You'll be like, oh, that job sucked. <laughs>
2: Probably. Let's get this really tiny car and just shove this huge engine in it. You need to watch a movie. Yeah, But that Cobra wasn't the one that won all the... It was the 289 Cobra that won... Was it Lamont?
3: It won three races, technically. Yeah. But you need to watch a movie.
2: Okay. No, I fully plan on it.
3: It's like, now. I haven't if seen that let's so check that out. Yeah. You're in some Democratic state, so your schools aren't open. So just <laughs> let your kid watch it tonight. It'd be good education. <laughs> Sorry.
1: No, campus is open. I'm in class tomorrow. No.
3: I have 14 minutes of battery life left. So what else do we want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, I I got to get downstairs to my wife because I got home from work and I came right up here. So, uh,
3: oh, yeah. well, <laughs> you're sleeping on the couch. So enjoy right. that.
1: <laughs> it's my warmer downstairs. So it's good. Well, I voice. think,
2: yeah, to, to maybe start the ra- wrapping it up is the scope is the one one of those the better ways to gather the raw data right scan tool data by and large is interpreted not just by us but by a module and the scope allows you raw data and sometimes part of our process would lead us to need to get that raw data and then the other thing is using it as a learning tool either as a student or trying to get better Um, and then uh, I think it's like anything, almost, here we go with another crap analogy. You know, it's almost like learning martial arts. Sometimes you learn them so you don't have to ever fight. You you use the scope, you get really, hopefully really, you know, really good or pretty skilled with it, pretty adept with it. And you find over time certain things that you always use the scope on because now you know how it works, what's going on. You don't necessarily need it. And that's not trying to displace the scope. The scope is what got you to that point.
1: If that makes sense. I think so. (laughs) You can all be uh, scope ninjas.
3: (laughs) (laughs) When he's like, oh, it's like martial arts. It's something you never, ever want to use. I'm like, no, it's like carrying a gun. You never want to use it. (laughs) Have you
2: got to pull it out? there's some reasonability to wrong. that though. That that would be reasonable, right? You you, you try to get adept with it. Oh, we got rid of him?
1: <laughs> His battery must have run out. <laughs> <real fast> for <laughs> <than> 14 minutes. <laughs>
2: oh, it's on. Uh, but yeah, he's, I don't think that's a horrible analogy either. Is you get adept with it and hopefully you never have to uh, right, use it. So you did all that learning and training and getting very adept with it. Uh, so that when you did need to use it, you did, de- uh, yeah, you out <laughs> yeah. when, when,
1: but actually also, it out.
2: also trained, hopefully to not use it when you don't have to. And it's not like this, I'm not trying to spot off about guns or nothing has nothing to do with that. Just the analogy with the scope that you get to a point where now you're not pulling out the scope, you know, needlessly, or we're trying to work more and more efficiently, more and more productively. You know, now do I need to pull the scope out to do this? No, I don't. Not this time, but now the next vehicle, it's like, I need to get the scope out, uh, you know, so I can get this done faster, just yeah. working working smarter. And that can be part of it.
1: Yeah. You know, when that's going to be most efficient in your process to actually pull that out and start messing with it, or, uh, eh, this might be a waste of time. If I pull, if I take it out here, cause yep. I'm not really sure. Yeah. That's a. Uh, I guess that's where we're all hoping to get. It's just let's get let's uh, be more efficient. And figure this out quicker.
2: Yeah, and it, I think it like but we were talking before. It starts out with certain ty- cer- certain tests. So you know, I, I had the uh, um, I talked about the mass airflow sensor, or fuel pump current used to be all the rage. All these different tests became very important. We learned more and more about how these systems worked, and because of that, may not need to
1: scope it if you know you know what i mean yeah well it's yeah it built your understanding of the system uh, better than it was before by going in depth looking at all the waveforms yep. uh, understanding the physical components through the electrical waveform or pressure waveform um I, I know like uh, the compression waveforms just from studying them i understand the four stroke better process
2: yeah <laughs> it, and it, it i'm glad you said in that my head. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I, I don't want to be jumping around with all these different portions of the scope discussion. But in cylinder compression is extremely important. I think for young, not even young age doesn't have anything to do with it. But people coming into the trade to become techs, they didn't if they didn't grow up the way a lot of us grew up with, you know, small engine backgrounds or grow grew up at a shop. Grew up on a farm where you're still taking stuff apart and fixing it. Um, a lot of these uh, people, students, have no real concept of what's going on inside of an engine. They they do the way you explain it, and you can show them the videos, but they've never had a piston in their hand. You know, they've never seen valves move. They never lapped valves to you know learn about valve sealing and stuff like that. So they have never had that experience, and now the use of that in cylinder waveform. Now they can kind of have a they have this picture of what's going on pressure wise in the cylinder, uh, and it becomes very very important. And like you're saying, you you understand the four stroke um, cycle so much better. You know when um, this stuff really started becoming more and more common and uh, part of a discussion. There are some hardcore engine people, people that have built, um, you know, racing engines. They know engines, but you show them that compression waveform and you point to like EVO. They know cam specs, they know valve opening specs, but when they see that, they can hardly get their head wrapped around this is a visual representation that the exhaust valve opens before the piston ever reaches bottom dead center and it, it's it's awesome to watch their eyes get wide as that really hammers home more and more stuff so it, i think it's just that much more important for um, students coming in to get that visual reference or yeah visual mental yeah. reference because what are the chances they're going to be tearing down an engine in the real world maybe exactly. cylinder heads but god are, is anybody really replacing Pistons anymore unless you work at a very dealer specific time t- yeah
1: yeah yeah and oh, it's same for electrical too is you know for the most part you know, we can't see it <laughs> we can't uh, actually see it with our eyes so man having a and, picture having that visualization for especially if you know very little about it you're just learning uh, I, yeah I think it, I think it makes all the difference to when you don't have a scope in front of you, you've got a picture in your mind. Yep. And maybe it's that that Pico waveform that's in your mind, but you got that from actually using the tool and learning yep. what's a voltage. The
2: yep. Seeing voltage versus versus current mm-hmm. and
1: how they kind of work together, if you will. Um just hooking up the leads for my students. Like here's an amp clamp, here's what it's doing, here's a voltage lead, here's what you need to do to get that waveform. I think. Honestly, just that helps yeah. them with the concepts a little bit because <laughs> yeah. like, what are we measuring? What are we looking at here?
2: Yeah. In the hands-on classes, that's kind of the thing, right? There's kind of, I suppose, what, three three pretty distinct areas of scope use. There's the buttons, what button does what? And then there's the um, hooking it up. Like, what yeah. do I got to do to get... What I need, you know, I want to see voltage. What do I have to do with these leads to make that happen? I want no, to see current signal acquisition. Yeah. And then now I have this waveform. What am I looking at? And um, I'm probably missing something else important, but those seem to be the, the big three. And um, the, what we find in the hands-on portion is a lot of people can do the buttons and they can interpret the waveform but when you get them car side they struggle so that's really important for them to spend some time under the hood or wherever you know to uh get the signal acquisition and then others struggle with the what button does what when how how do i get this picture on my screen and then so i can look at it how should i be looking at it and then interpretations you know i think different people have different ways of uh deciding what's good and bad, like maybe it's just seeing a few good ones and referencing it and using your memory that way. Mm -hmm. And some people it's, and I might be more that type is if I, if I kind of understand the circuit, I can figure out what that what I'm looking at.
1: Yeah. That's the goal is to be able to, to analyze what's in front of you rather than memorize every single other one that you've seen. Yep. um just taking it taking it case by case
0: all right that's going to do it for this episode one more big thank you to both mats for being on the show today i really enjoyed that talk and learned a whole bunch uh, i always do I'm getting to talk to everybody in the automotive field it's a lot of fun even for myself so hopefully you learned something from that as well and you enjoyed the episode but Other than that, let's get out there, start fixing the world one car at a time.